resume our study into the, the Psalter, and this morning we'll be looking at Psalm 11 specifically. And this is one of those psalms where there is no superscription that tells us the time in David's life when this was written. It is attributed to David himself. It's possible that this was written in the early days of Absalom's rebellion, but it's also possible that it was not. We do know that from David's life there were periods when he was in great danger, when he was on the run from Saul, who was trying to kill him. We also know that he fled from Absalom when he was rebelling against his father and usurping his authority and taking the kingdom away from his father. But in this psalm that we're in today, David did not flee, or he has not yet fled, but he was instead finding rest in the Lord. David was in some type of danger. We can't specifically say what it was. But whatever this danger was, he found comfort and refuge spiritually in his relationship with God. Now, you and I today in the United States of America are rarely in physical danger from physical enemies, but we are in a spiritual battle that will never come to an end. We have a real enemy that seeks to deceive us into thinking that God is not there, that God does not care, and that God is not willing to help us. Our enemy seeks to distort our understanding of what God's Word says by reducing it to mere literature, or by telling us that it's outdated ideas, or into thinking that the promises of God are not applicable to my life, but they are reserved for the super saints, or for those that have a higher degree of commitment in their life than I perhaps do. Sometimes our enemy leads us to think that the promises are not for us, but they are for someone else. Our enemy seeks to bring spiritual and emotional destruction into our lives, leading us to doubt God and to encourage us to turn to something or to someone other than God. Now, our spiritual battles also include those that our enemy will use to fight against us, pawns, if you will, in this spiritual battle, these battles of good and righteousness against the forces of the wicked. Now, the wicked are the enemies of God and all that He stands for. Not necessarily overtly evil people, as we sometimes think wickedness means, but those who simply oppose Christ and oppose His truth and oppose His rule and His reign in this world. There is no shortage of opposition to the gospel and to the message of Jesus Christ. And therefore, our world is filled with all kinds of wickedness that is not overtly evil. Now, these individuals are often unintentional allies with the temporary God of this world seeking to destroy and persecute those who have pledged their faith in Christ. Now, with that in mind, we must must remember that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places, as Ephesians 6.12 tells us. Now, while we ourselves are not in physical danger from our spiritual attackers, there are Christians all over the world who are. They are being persecuted simply because they are Christians. Some are facing the option of either renouncing their faith or dying by the sword. Some are not even given that option. They are killed because they are Christians. 
The church is persecuted all around the world. And I wonder why we don't learn that where the church is persecuted most, it grows the fastest. Did you know where some of the places where Christians are being persecuted at the highest rate is in China? And China has actually prayed that America would fall under the same kind of persecution so that the nation of America would reclaim their faith in Christ, take an unquenchable stand for truth, and be faithful to the God who is. Now for us, this psalm reminds us that we can find refuge in God spiritually, And for those in physical danger, it encourages encourages their faith in God who reigns and is on their side. So our psalm is going to be divided into two sections, verses 1 through 3 and verses 4 through 7. So read along with me, if you will, Psalm 11. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in the darkness at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked and the one who loves violence His soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain snares. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. So the first thing that we're going to see here in verses 1 through 3 is David's position. This is the position that David is in in his life. David says that I will take refuge in the Lord. Therefore, David is safe in the Lord. That word refuge very simply means a place of safety. Now, David is not talking about being in the tabernacle. He's not talking about hiding out in the Holy of Holies. He's not talking about a physical place of safety. He's talking about his relationship with God. It is a spiritual position of trusting in the Lord, of firmly trusting in His sovereign rule, and it is the deep assurance that no matter what David faces, God is going to be with him. It is David's declaration that in God and God alone, he places his trust. He places his very life in the hands of God. Now, David who has advisors, is getting bad advice. Just like Job did when Job's world was falling apart and his friends, his counselor said, curse God and die. Job refused to give in because Job trusted in God. In the same sense, David is getting bad advice. These individuals that he trusts who are there to help him in some way with the affairs of his life, and they are speaking to him. And David is now going to question the counsel that his advisors are giving to him. Now, if you'll notice, in the middle of verse 1, there is a quotation mark. And at the end of verse 3, there is the end of that quotation mark. And what David is doing is he is repeating back what his advisors are telling him to do. So David is getting bad advice. He is being told to flee. He says, in the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, to my innermost being, to the depth of who I am, to run away? How can you tell me to flee as a bird 
to your mountain. David cannot believe what he is hearing, what he is being advised to do by these trusted individuals. Now, the phrase to flee as a bird to your mountain means that it is a quick and an easy escape from the potential danger that David is facing. It may refer to David finding shelter in the mountain when he sought refuge from the murderous King Saul. It may simply relate as a as an analogy to the safety that a bird will find in the crevices of a big mountain when there's a predator that is out to get him. Whatever it means, there is this quick and easy escape that David's advisors are encouraging him to follow. Here's what we need to learn from Scripture. We are never to flee from temptation. We're not to flee from temptation. In fact, excuse me, we are to flee from temptation. First, Second Timothy 2.22 says, Now flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So while we are, temp- while we are encouraged to flee from temptation, we are told that we are not to flee from our duty. And this is what David's position is right here. David is saying that I am the king of Israel. It is my duty to be the king of Israel. And I am not going to flee. We find the same example expressed many, many years later when Nehemiah was brought back to Jerusalem to build the walls. And here's what he says. He says, when I entered the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehabatol, who was confined at home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God, in the tabernacle, within the temple, and let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you, and they are coming to kill you at night. But Nehemiah said, should a man like me flee, and could one such as I go into the temple to save his life, I will not go in. So you see, we have this duty to stand, just like we looked in Ephesians chapter 6. When we are facing spiritual battle, we are told to stand in the Lord and the armor that He provides, and we are not to shrink back or to run away from the danger that we face. David, as the king, has a responsibility to act like a king and not like a hireling who will run in the face of danger. So David is being encouraged to flee. He's getting bad advice. And the reason is, is that David is being attacked. Verse 2 reads, For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. This is the advice. This is the counsel that David's advisors are giving to him. And what they are saying is the arrow is in the string and it is ready for the firing. The bow is bent. If you've ever shot a bow and an arrow, you know that before you shoot, you put the arrow in the string and you pull the string back. And when you do that, the bow is now bent, meaning that it is ready to be fired. Now, this could refer to a literal bow and arrow, but it most likely refers to what is being said about David to weaken his position as king and to make his life more difficult. We see some examples of this in the other Psalms that are attributed to David. In Psalm 57, 4, we read, My soul is among lions. I must lie among those who breathe forth fire, even the sons of men whose teeth are spears and arrows and their tongue a sharp sword. We read in Psalm 64, 
verses two, verses two through four, hide me from the secret counsel of evildoers, from the tumult of those who do iniquity, who have sharpened their tongue like a sword. They aimed bitter speech as their arrow to shoot from concealment at the blameless. Suddenly they shoot at him and they do not fear. Now, if you remember, when we looked briefly at Absalom's rebellion, when, when Absalom was exiled from the presence of the king, after several years, he was allowed to come back. And if you remember, for four years, he sat out at the gate of the city and talked to anybody that was coming and going and began to pave the way for his eventual rebellion. So it's very possible that this is what is going on here. But we can't say that for certainty. Whatever it means, in terms of the time in David's life, we know that these words that are being spoken are deceptive and they are destructive and they are able to create great difficulty for him. You know, one of the ways that we can see this being lived out in our own world today is the whole topic of fake news. You've heard about fake news, right? It's all of these false stories that get circulated seemingly by reputable individuals. And when you begin to read the fake news and you see it in multiple places, you begin to wonder and go, oh, I wonder what's really going on here. I wonder if he's being honest. I wonder if he isn't really a liar and a deceiver and a manipulator. And so fake news has the ability to make life incredibly difficult for the individual who is at the end of that attack. And that's exactly what is taking place in the life of David. He is being attacked verbally. His authority as king is being undermined and it's creating great difficulty for him. Now let's notice three things about this attack. Number one, it is being planned secretly. These plans aren't being formulated out in the public square. These plans are being formulated behind closed doors. Verse 2 says that the arrow is in the string, the bow is bent to shoot in darkness. And it indicates that there's a secret plan going on that is trying to undermine the rule of David as the king. So these plans take place in secret behind closed doors. And what it reminds me is this, is that evil is pervasive and it can be sometimes difficult to see until that evil is actually unleashed into our world. Goals are adopted, agendas are set, outcomes are considered, considered strategies are made for these evil plans to be realized. And they are often shrouded in half-truths with hidden agendas that most people never are aware of until it's far too late. Evil plans are not made in the open because they would be seen for what they are and they would quickly be opposed by those who were made aware of them. You remember back in the 1930s when Germany was in disarray, the economy was in the tank, and the people were leaderless. They really didn't know where they were going to go. And this seemingly harmless individual by the name of Adolf Hitler rose to power and was made the Chancellor of Germany in 1933. And nobody knew what his true plan was. But it didn't take long to find out when he began to bring the German army into the neighboring countries. And he began to take them into prison mode, and he began to eradicate and exterminate Jewish people simply because they were Jewish. Nobody knew about the plans in the early 1930s. They weren't aware of what was going to happen until it was far too late. 
Number two, not only is it being planned in secret, but it is directed at the righteous. Verse 2 tells us that this is directed at the upright in heart. So the upright refers, refers to those who love God and who seek to do His will. Although they are not perfect, as David was not perfect, they still desire to please God and to serve Him with their lives. Make no mistake, the righteous are always going to be opposed and targeted by the wicked. Let me ask you a question. What has David done to bring this attack upon him. What have persecuted Christians around the world done to bring this kind of attack upon their lives? Well, the answer to that is absolutely nothing. And the sad reality is, is that we don't have to do anything to bring these attacks on us other than simply align ourselves with the truth of Jesus Christ and the truth that God has revealed to us in His Word. If we are going to do that, we are going to be attacked because the wicked and the evil, those who oppose Christ, His rule and His reign, are going to attack us. It has been this way since the fall of man, and it's going to be this way until Christ returns and takes his church home. Number three, this attack is designed to destroy. It's more than just unsettling things. It's more than just smearing someone's reputation. It has as its goal destruction. The advisors state this concern by asking this question in verse 3. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And so the foundations here refer to the order of society, to the social and civil order of the community, and it also unsettles the divine rule that comes through the king of Israel by the man that God has chosen to be the king. We see this reference of the foundations and what it means in Psalm 82, verses 3 and 5. And the psalmist writes, Vindicate the weak and the fatherless, do justice to the afflicted and destitute, rescue the weak and needy, deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. So when David is attacked as the king of Israel. It means that the foundations of the nation of Israel are also under attack and it is going to wreak incredible havoc on the world that they live in. Think back to the rule of Saul. Saul was abandoned by God because he desired to do wickedness in his heart. Absalom was not chosen by God to be the king of Israel. And if you look at those two periods, before and after David was the king, you can see the kind of disarray that the nation of Israel fell into. The golden era of the nation of Israel was in the time of David's rule because he was the divine representative of the God who had put him there for purposes that were built upon the foundations that God has established This is the true goal of the wicked, of those that devise evil plans. It is to weaken the foundation of truth established by God and to create unrest in the lives of people. Think about in America today. We have never been more divided as a nation than we are right now today. Why? Because the foundations of what what America has been built upon has been under attack. 
And it isn't just an incidental byproduct. It is designed that way so that the foundations can be laid again. And this is really the answer to the question that the advisors ask. If the foundations are shattered or broken, what can the righteous do? Well, the righteous have to lay new foundations. That has taken place all throughout the nation of Israel. It's taking place all throughout the history of Christianity. When the foundations of the truth of Christ are broken and eradicated, then the church has to lay the foundation again. We can't just sit back and hope and wonder and think that it might be established apart from the intentional work of God's people. If the foundations are to be shaken, if they are to be broken and eradicated, then we, the church, have to relay the foundation based upon the truth of who God is and what God has designed for His people. David understood this. And his faith in God is being challenged. How can he flee when so much is at stake? How could he deny the God who made him the king? And how could he not trust the God who rules and reigns over the world? You see, this is the same question that we have to ask ourselves. How can we run in the face of temptation? How can we deny the God who has saved us? How can we shrink back from our responsibility and hope that somebody else will do, will do what we are designed to do. So David, by taking refuge in the Lord, is placing his full trust in God. He is seeking to be faithful to Him and to please Him with all of his life. Now, the second thing that we look at here, not only David's position that he is safe in the Lord, but secondly, let's look at David's proclamation. One of the reasons that David feels safe in the Lord, not only because of an intimate relationship with him, but also because of this proclamation that David makes. The proclamation is this, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. He says in verse 4, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. David found great safety in the Lord because the Lord is sovereign. He is on his throne. He still possesses supreme authority. And church, we need to remember that that is never, ever going to change. When we look outward at the problems that we face, and we look at the overwhelming circumstances that we have coming against our lives, that's what we see. When we look out, we see all the problems. But my friend, when we look up, we see the solution to those problems that we face. The church for far too long and far too often fails to look upward, but instead looks outward and becomes discouraged, feels like it's overwhelming, feels like we're powerless to do anything to change it. In the face of evil plans, in the face of overwhelming circumstances, with the human perspective that evil is winning and God is absent, David looks beyond his enemies, he looks beyond his advisors, and he looks up and he makes this proclamation incredibly clear, God is in control. Can you say that today? Can you make that same declaration? Does that truth and does that reality bring peace to your heart? Does it instill joy in your life knowing that nothing can diminish 
the reality that God is in control. You know, we love to celebrate the great attributes of God, that God loves us and He is merciful and He is gracious and He is loving and He is kind and He is generous and He is faithful. But when was the last time that we celebrated the fact that God is omnipotent, that God is omnipresent, that God is omniscient, that God is eternal and immutable and infinite and self-existent and transcendent? You see, we like to celebrate the things that God does for us, but we often fail to celebrate who God is. And the reality is that God is in control and He is sovereign and there is nothing and there is no one that is ever going to change that. Because that is true, we can find safety in the Lord. He can be our refuge. You know, our days are numbered. They are fixed in God's mind. There's nothing that we can do to change that. And with that being true, we ought to find the ability to live our lives without fear of the enemy, without fear of the obstacles and circumstances that we face, and find great rest in the reality that God is in control. Now, David describes four things that God is doing, and he is doing these things out of his sovereign rule. Number one, God is watching. Verse 4 says, His eyes behold. From His throne in heaven, God is observing all that is being done, both in public and in private. Make no mistake about it, God sees it all. There is no true hiding place from Him. He sees everything because God is omniscient. God is spirit. He is everywhere all the time. God is not unaware of what is being planned in secret. God is not shocked and surprised at the plans of the wicked. His eyes behold, meaning that they are narrowly focused and intently watching it all. He is keenly aware. Nothing misses the eyes of the Lord. You know, in our world, 2020 is considered to be perfect vision. But God's vision goes way beyond that. He sees into the hearts of man and what man really believes. He sees into the minds of man and what he really thinks. God sees everything and he sees it perfectly. David takes great comfort in knowing that God sees it all, and because God is sovereign, He is still in control. Number two, not only is God watching, but God is testing. Verses 4 and 5 say, His eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. So not only is God watching all that's going on, but God is also testing those who are going through what is going on. He is testing all of mankind. Eyes and eyelids are synonymous terms here, but there is a very interesting poetic usage of the word eyelid here because it may indicate that from man's perspective that God's eyes are closed and he isn't seeing the evil that is being planned. You know, we can't see our own eyelids, can we? When we close our eyes, we just see darkness. But others can see our eyelids when our eyes are closed. And so perhaps David's advisors mistakenly believe that God isn't 
in control, that God really isn't watching. And if they were to see God, his eyes would be closed and the eyelids would be exposed. Well, David assures them that God is watching, that God sees it all, and God is testing mankind. This word test here has two meanings for it. First of all, letter A, it means to examine. In this sense, God is, is examining the lives of the wicked, and in the end, they will get what they deserve. We're going to look at more of that in just a moment. But that word test means to examine. Letter B, it means trial. This is what we are more accustomed to, and what we commonly understand behind the word test. And so in this sense, God is testing the righteous to expose to us what we really believe, to drive us towards Him, and to develop and deepen our faith in Him. So David recognizes that God is testing him. Are you going to stand and trust me, or are you going to flee in the face of danger? You know, in the spiritual battles that you and I face every day, we are being tested. What will we do? What do we truly believe? And to whom will we turn because of this difficulty that we face? Satan tempts us to bring out the worst in us, but God tests us to bring out the best in us. Some of the greatest verses in all the Bible, James 1, verses 2 through 4, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect to complete, lacking in nothing. God isn't testing the wicked to see how they will respond or to expose to them how they're going to respond. God is simply examining the wicked But to us, the righteous, the ones who love God and seek to do His will, He is testing us to expose our lack of faith, to drive us to Him so that we can be more like Him. Number three, God is judging. So now we look at what is going to come to the wicked, to the evil, to those who are the enemies of God, to those that oppose the rule and the reign of Jesus Christ. Verses 5 and 6, And the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain snares, fire and brimstone, and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. Because God's eyes see it all, and because God judges perfectly, the wicked will be severely punished based upon what God has seen. We see God's response to those who stand opposed to Him. And it's a tragic end. Tucked into this verse, it says, In the one who loves violence, his soul hates. When it says his soul, it means in God's innermost being, there is hatred for those who oppose Him. And the final judgment of mankind, the wicked will be separated from the righteous, and God will judge. We don't like to think about that. We like to think about the God of grace and mercy and love and forgiveness. But we can't parse the attributes of God and escape His justness and His righteousness. And so when God judges the wicked, He will judge with fire. 
It's similar to the refiner's fire. But the wicked have nothing to refine. Their lives are built upon lies and deceit and sin. The life of the wicked is unable to withstand the Lord's examination. And so it says that the Lord is going to rain snares. It's a metaphor for raining fire. Imagine going outside and instead of feeling the cool drops of a summer rain, you feel the burning fire of coal. It says a fire and brimstone is going to come down like that which that destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. It's a burning wind. It's a wind that burns and destroys everything in its path. Not a cool breeze, but a consuming fire. The word of the Lord says this is the portion of their cup. The portion of their cup is very simply the wrath of God. This is the outcome that awaits the wicked. Those who are scheming wicked plans and secret seeking to attack the upright in heart, to destroy what God stands for and what God has done. But number four, not only is God judging, God is rewarding. Verse 7 concludes our psalm by saying, For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. And the upright will behold his face. The Lord is righteous. In his innermost being, that's who God is. And in his innermost being, he loves righteousness. And the result of that is that the upright are going to behold his face. God sees those who are righteous, those that love him and seek to do his will. But instead of receiving the wrath of God, which we rightfully deserve, instead we are going to be rewarded. We are going to be rewarded with himself. We are going to behold the Lord. As God beholds the lives of mankind, seeing it with perfect clarity, the righteous will also behold the very face of God, seeing Him as He truly is. To see the face of God is an expression of deliverance from adversity. It's an expression of close, intimate communion with God. And it is of the reality of God's blessed presence in this world and in the world to come. That's what it means to be rewarded with Himself. We will see Him as He really is. After all, God has given us Himself in the person of Jesus Christ, the second person on the Trinity. And we are indwelt by the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. We have been rewarded with God Himself. David has the ability to experience safety in the Lord, his being a refuge because David had this close and intimate communion with God. He loved God and he sought to obey Him and to please Him with all of his heart. David found safety in the Lord because he trusted in the sovereign rule of God, knowing that no one and no thing was ever going to change the fact that God's throne is in heaven. Let me share this with you as we get ready to close. We will not find refuge in the Lord in religion. We will not find refuge in the Lord 
and self-righteousness or by going through the motions. When life crashes in on us, when we're being opposed by the wicked, our safety will be found in the Lord through a close and intimate connection with Him and through a firm trust in the sovereignty of God. We will either be drawn to Him or we will run to someone or to something else. I think it's a great encouragement to recognize that no matter what we face, how real the danger might be, how perceived the danger might be, how incredibly difficult these life-shattering circumstances that we go through are, we can find refuge in Him. Where do you find your safe place today? Is it in God? Or is it in someone or something else? Would you pray with me, please? Father, we thank you that you never change. We thank you that you are immutable. And the same peace and safety that David found in you, we can find today. But God, I pray that you would help us to truly understand that we will only find that safety as we really and truly give ourselves to you. That we would desire to be in your presence, that we would spend time in your word, that we would pour our hearts before you. And as we give ourselves to you, Father, that we would trust in your sovereign rule. God, what a great encouragement it is to know that you rule and reign from eternity past into eternity future. Thank you, Father, that we belong to you. God, expose to us the substitutes that we've placed into our lives for you. Would you strip us of those things that replace our dependency upon you? Would you remind us regularly that you have already rewarded us with yourself and in the future there will be an even greater reward as we get to see you as you really are, to be in your presence and to worship you without any of the presence of sin for all of eternity. We give you thanks. We pray these things in Jesus' name.